We don't often use illustrations from the same source material within a one-year span, but I'm drawn once again to To Kill a Mockingbird. We used it just a couple weeks ago, but there's another scene that I cannot help but pull from out of this great American novel as we continue our series on the cross. I'm drawn to the scene where, where Scout and Jim are complaining to Calpurnia about their father's age, about his inability to do the things that younger dads do. Atticus, in his mid-50s, have, has children who, who are in their young adolescence, preteen years. And at one point he told Scout, I just got a late start. So they were complaining to Cal. And she says, well, Mr. Finch, why, he can do lots of things. Like what, Scout asked. Calpurnia scratched her head and said, well, well, I don't rightly know. And then Jim underlined it when he asked Atticus if he was going out for the Methodists. And Atticus said he'd break his neck if he did. He was just too old for that sort of thing. Scout goes on to narrate, telling us the Methodists were trying to pay off their church mortgage and had challenged the Baptists to a game of touch football. Everybody in town's father was playing, it seemed, except Atticus. Jim said he didn't even want to go, but he was unable to resist football in any form, and he stood gloomily on the sidelines with Atticus and me, watching Cecil Jacobs' father make touchdowns for the Baptists. You can hear the rivalry in her voice, can't you? You can hear it even more in the film when Jim won't come down out of the tree until Atticus agrees to play football for the Methodists. If you don't know, the author of To Kill a Mockingbird, Harper Lee, was herself a faithful Methodist. She even attended our conference's Methodist place of higher education, Huntington College in Montgomery, Alabama, my own alma mater. And I'm sure, though, that in the 1930s, the distinctions between the two denominations were about as indistinguishable to a child as it was for me growing up in Dothan in the 1990s. Nevertheless, though, I, I might not have known why we didn't care so much for the church of our fellow Christian sisters and brothers right down the road. But I do remember that our coach for our church league basketball team pushed us a little bit harder when we played against First Baptist. See, we in the South, we know a little bit about rivalries, don't we? We have all sorts of rivalries down here, and they're not just relegated to religion or at least not to, to this religion. There's another religion in the South that generates quite a rivalry. Maybe you've heard of the, the annual Iron Bowl. Maybe you haven't. If you haven't, welcome to Alabama. For you, maybe it's the Egg Bowl, or maybe it's the largest something kind of party in the world, whatever that might be. We live in a world of, of great rivalries, but when I think about the Iron Bowl in particular, sure, we're nice enough to get along with the fans of the other team throughout the year. We can live in a world of passive aggression just to go along to get along until the moment the game kicks off. And then we'd be hard-pressed to be in the room with somebody from the other team. We do not want to be held account for the things we might say about our cross-state rivals. You see, friends, rivalry is a powerful thing. It's also a peculiar thing. I think in our minds, we imagine rivals as the people or groups that are utterly different from us. 
They're so other. But when I think of epic rivalries, it seems to me like the most notable ones are not when a person or group is so different from another person or group, but rivalries tend to hit their fever pitch when we are almost alike entirely, but just different enough. I mean, think about it. The Iron Bowl is played by two teams of equal amounts of players. Both are fielded by similar-sized universities in the same conference. Both are recruiting the same areas, and both are playing football in the state of Alabama. Oregon is not Auburn's rival. They have less in common. The New Orleans Saints are not Alabama's rivals. Sure, they play close, similar parts of the country. They technically play the same game, but they're different, obviously. And the rivalry between Alabama and Auburn doesn't feel quite as important on those years where one team is really good and the other is not, right? The rivalries are the deepest, the most passionate when the West is on the line, when we have the, the hope to make it to the playoffs. We're not rivals with those that are so totally different from us. We're rivals with those that are almost exactly like us, but just different enough. And that is the heart of our final atonement theory. The things we've been considering during this Lenten season. Here we are now on Palm Sunday, beginning Holy Week. And throughout the past month and a half, we've been trying to imagine the different ways of understanding the cross of Jesus Christ. Why it happened. What it accomplished. We've looked at the ransom theory where we learned that Christ paid our debt and set us free. We looked at Jesus' victory over death, and we looked at Christ on the cross as the recipient of God's justice. And all of these reasons are good. They're all rooted in Scripture. They're all true. But none of them are the entire truth. In fact, all of them leave out one of the most important truths. They leave out the part that we played in the cross. Each of these leaves out the truth that Jesus died because we killed him. And that, in summary, is the scapegoat theory. It's also called the Girardian theory of atonement. But for today's sermon, we'll stick with scapegoat. It's a more modern way of understanding the cross. But it's one that's gained a lot of traction very quickly. What's great about this theory is that it has gained a lot of traction with a lot of different groups. There is not one person that says that this is ours and you can't have it, right? This is not the understanding of the cross for the religious right or the religious left. One contemporary Bible scholar said, the only problem with this theory of atonement is that once you understand it, you'll begin to see it everywhere in the Bible. And eventually you can't see anything else. One of the strangest features of this theory is that it has devoted fans among the most conservative and the most decidedly more liberal theologians and pastors. Rene Girard, who most credit as being the chief inspiration for this understanding, says that uh, people all over the spectrum will say that he has been highly influential on their thoughts. Both prominent Christian teachers and writers of all kinds, from fundamentalist Calvinists, traditional Catholics, progressive non-denominationalists, and even the United Church of Christ. They all seem to grab onto this theory as something that is worthwhile. So what can we say to better understand this idea of the cross? Well, the first thing is that 
when we understand the cross like this, it shows us that the cross is the violent means to expose our own proclivity towards violence. The reason why this is also referred to as the Girardian theory is because it was suggested by René Girard, the philosopher, anthropologist, professor. And he insisted that humans have a tendency towards violence that does not come from how different we are, but how similar we are. Girard's first great insight is that nearly all of our desires are imitative. We want to be like somebody else. We want the things that other people want. Marketing proves this is true, right? If the cool people have it, then we want it. As one Girardian pointed, put it, the reason why you want a Ferrari or an iPhone is because they're highly coveted items. They're what everybody else wants. They are cool. So we want them too. In this framework, because most people desire the same things, conflict is endemic to our society. We see others what we, wanting what we want as our enemies. If there's somebody else who wants what you want, and there's a scarce amount of that thing, that person is your enemy. You are in conflict to make sure you get it, and they don't. In this framework, the conflict destroys a society unless society unleashes its violent urges on somebody else. A scapegoat. Someone else to cast the blame. Someone else on whom all the problems can fall. After this cathartic violence, conflict really does vanish. Peace is suddenly restored, and that, in a perverse way, vindicates the scapegoating. Things are better now, so it really must have been that person's fault. If we couldn't kill or outcast the scapegoat every so often, we'd kill each other. It's so ingrained in us that Gerard calls this the scapegoat mechanism. It's something that we do automatically. We don't even realize we're doing it. This is an unconscious part of our reality. That we see others as competition. And it's not just us. This is not modern. We see this throughout history. Gerard noted this both in the myths and the actuals of human history by saying the example Romulus and his brother Ramus founded the city of Rome. Ramus breaks the law of the newly founded city, so his brother kills him. Nearly every society tells itself that its original goodness depended upon the death of the original savages or the evildoers. We are who we are because we vanquish the enemy. To Gerard, there was only one religious text that exposed scapegoating as a lie. There's only one religious tradition that says conflict does not come from the one who needs to die. It comes from our collective need to crucify the outsider. You see, Gerard was an atheist until he read the Bible. He expected to see the same kind of scapegoating dynamics at work in the Bible, but he found the exact opposite in these religious texts and myths. Instead, he saw how the Bible tries to deconstruct and denounce scapegoating. Gerard points to stories like Joseph's in the book of Genesis. He was scapegoated by his brothers who sold him into slavery. And then his Egyptian masters, the wife of his Egyptian master, put him in prison for something he didn't do. But in Joseph's story, Egypt is not saved from the famine by killing Joseph, but by elevating the innocent 
by not scapegoating, but recognizing where the blame belongs. The ultimate instance of this in the Bible is, of course, Jesus. Jesus is God's answer to our need to cast blame. In Jesus, God came as the ultimate innocent to reveal things hidden since the foundation of the world. It was Jesus that said, Hey, I know you all think that he looks great, but the emperor is not wearing any clothes. The only one that could show us the reality of what was happening in our world was the only one who did not deserve any blame. When Christ was killed for doing no wrong, he showed the world that we would cast blame on anything to avoid taking account for ourselves. In his book, Did God Kill Jesus?, Tony Jones refers to this as the mirror theory. He says that on the cross, Jesus acted as a mirror. God is holding up a huge mirror, and what we see is our own violence reflected back at us. That's exactly what's happening in the gospel reading for today. And the thing that's going to be taking us to Good Friday, Jesus has been on a tear for three years. He's built a following. He's changed lives. He's, he's offered wise teaching. He's pretty much had the most prolific three years of one person in human history. He's been so much like us that he's not just been the son of God, he's been the son of man. Jesus was tired. He was hungry. He ate and slept. He did everything else just like us. And for these three years, the crowds have loved him for that. Up until the moment where they didn't. In less than a week, he went from being praised to pariah. To being the chosen one. To the chastised. Jesus is brought before the people and they're offered a chance to set him free. But they choose not to let him go, but shout, crucify him. Crucify him. Before them stands a man in whom Pilate can find no wrong. Jesus is so much like them, but they have found just enough difference to make him worthy of the blame. It's an epic rise and an instant fall. And isn't that often the case with scapegoats, with people that we blame for the problems of the world? They, are tend, to be, they tend to be something new. Something that's different than the status quo. Something that changes the way things have always been done. And so they need to be brought down by the stakeholders who don't want things to change. It's their fault that things are the way that they are. It's, it's this meteoric rise to prominence that ruffles enough feathers on the way up that there's a catastrophic fall that happens in the blink of an eye. And so the cross exposed our own tendency to scapegoat anyone rather than taking blame of ourselves. But the truth is, though it exposed this reality, it did not end the practice. And by itself, this reality is just bad news. The bad news about the cross is that we did it. And we still do it. And the worst news is not that scapegoating is cruel. The worst news is that it's a lie. It will not save us. It never has. Casting the blame on others does not absolve us of our own sins. But the good news of the gospel is that forgiveness is real. Christ is really innocent. The scapegoat of all scapegoats 
and we really need his forgiveness. And he has really given it. When we see the cross, we see humanity doing the worst thing to God we knew how to do. But when we chose to do our worst, Jesus chose to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgiveness came when Christ paid our debts and set us free from slavery to evil. Forgiveness came when Christ rose victorious after a metaphysical battle with death itself. But after all of this, forgiveness came when Jesus said, I forgive you. We still live in a world where people are divided. Where we are looking for people to blame. Where we choose scapegoats. We like to blame others for our own faults. We like to cast out others for the worst parts of ourselves. We like to say it's somebody else's doing that has made the world the way it is. The Jews in the Bible hated and cast out the Samaritans, not because they were so unlike them, but because they were just like them, with just enough difference. How different is that from us, who cast out of church with our glances those who are just like us, but they dress a little different? Or what about whenever we look at other denominations with whom we are aligned on almost everything, but we blame them or cast them out because of one single particularity that might divide us? If you're a diehard Auburn fan, how do you really feel about the Alabama fans? If you go to public school, how do you perceive those who go to private school? If you are rich, how do you treat those that are poor? We scapegoat all the time. Because it's easy. It's easy to cast blame on someone else rather than taking it on ourselves. Because someone is our enemy, we think that their destruction will make everything right. It'll make us feel better. We'd be better off without them. But Jesus revealed to us a better way so that we can choose something better. Or as Hebrews 10 puts it, Christ sacrificed ended all sacrifices for all time. Because of the cross, everything has changed. To be a Christian is to refuse to participate in evil. To follow Christ is to remember that the enemy is not our neighbor, who Jesus also came to save. The enemy are the powers of sin in each of our own hearts. The cross shows us not only how to be made right with God, but how to be made right with one another. You know, for the gospel writers, there was no reconciliation with God that did not include being reconciled with everybody else. They are one and the same. The cross was the sacrificial undoing of sacrifice so that the world can be made one. The cross is the good news of Jesus Christ, but it does not mean it's the easy way. In fact, it's just the opposite. As God has forgiven us, we can forgive those who've sinned against us. Casting blame is easy. Forgiveness is hard. And forgiveness doesn't look like a spectacular power. Often you can barely hear someone saying, Father, forgive them, because everybody else is shouting, crucify him, crucify him. 
Forgiveness doesn't promise the same quick fix as violence and exile. Most people need a long time to even realize that they need to be forgiven. They might not think your forgiveness is doing anything at all. I mean, it sounds crazy, but some folks will think that Cecil Jacob's father is more powerful than Atticus Finch just because Atticus never outran the Baptist to an end zone. Forgiveness may never look like much compared to shouting crowds or piercing nails. But forgiveness has one big advantage over scapegoating. Forgiveness isn't a lie. God's forgiveness is real. It really does save. It has saved us. It's saving the world. On this Palm Sunday, where we begin our final steps in our journey towards the cross, what a wonder it would be if we not only accepted that we are forgiven, but if we also recognize that so is everybody else. To see our neighbors not as our enemies, but as ourselves. To look in the faces of the people with whom we had the most disagreement and say, you and I are both children of God. The cross is the only hope for real peace, real unity, real atonement, real at one That's what atonement is, to be made one. Only through finding reconciliation with one another can we truly experience reconciliation with God. So heaven help us if we settle for anything less. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.